Hello and welcome to the Betterverse Movie Channel, where today on this show, as we've been talking for the past few days, we are talking the one and only Martin Scorsese. And today we're in the year 1991 and we're talking the film that follows Goodfellas, uh, one of the uh, a film that I have a really weird relationship, which I'll get into. But basically, The Simpsons kind of just like destroyed my like being able to appreciate this movie to some degree. But if that hasn't given you the clue, we are talking Cape Fear, which is a remake of a 1962 film starring. I want to say it's the same actor. Uh, oh, my God. Why am I blanking? This is recording at 8 a.m. Brain Gregory Peck uh, and joining me today on this episode i have danny jarabek did i did i hit that name right did i hit the name right? jarabek like, well you're Jarabek. You're, Jarabek. you're right you're almost there i was almost there i was like looking at the chat and then i like i looked at it and i'm like okay i'm just gonna say it how i'm reading it. and i'm like nope that sounds wrong when i read it out loud jarabek you were you were so close you almost I had know, it i know it was just it was the stumble at the beginning and I'm like, I can't recover from this. I'm like, I realized I did it wrong. And I'm just like, Ugh. But I've done I've I've asked guests before how to pronounce their names and then said it completely wrong, like five minutes later when I introduced them. So I totally get that feeling. Yeah. So, Danny, you're joining me today for the Cape Fear episode. This has been a long time in the works uh, mm -hmm. for us. I, I think we've known each other. Not like I mean, like we've never met, but I mean, like we've known of each other for mm -hmm probably a handful of months at the very least when yeah. I was getting guests together uh, I contacted uh guest of the show and friend of the show who was who was on this episode for King of Comedy Brian Rowe and he suggested like hey you know reach out to some of these people uh to try getting it and you were one of the names uh on there so we kind of had that mutual friend and we're now in the studio or uh just talking about the one and only Martin Scorsese Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. It's uh, like you said, long time in the making. Brian Rowe, love him, uh, been on his show and uh, he's been on mine as well. So glad, uh, glad I got a, a recommendation from him. Uh, he's a he's a great guy and and certainly glad to be here and talking about, uh, as you said, the GOAT, the one and only Martin Scorsese. I mean, who else uh, can we be talking about this year with uh, what we've got on the horizon from him? Yeah, th this is all due to the fact that Killers of the Flower Moon is releasing in what is at this point we're recording saturday august 12th 8 a.m uh pst time we are in the belief that killers of the flower moon will release in october now if you're reading reports every day in the trades we're kind of flying like just blind right now in the sense that we're like everything seems to be scheduled to still be coming out minus the challengers movie i think it's the only major movie that's been delayed yeah. right now the zendaya one yeah. Everything else seems to be running under the assumption that it's coming out. Hopefully that doesn't change. If you end up hearing this episode in like June of 2024, that explains why. But anyway, with that all said, like, I guess we should just talk about it, Danny. What's your relationship with the guy himself, Martin? Martin yeah, of course. So him. I wouldn't say that he uh, is is on the sort of pedestal that a lot of people might put him on as like the director that like got them into sure. movies. And, you know, I mean, the the sky is limitless with the way that people uh, look up to him as a filmmaker. I mean, he's 
undeniably, uh, you know, Mount Rushmore of of American film directors and, and filmmakers, not only for for what he's made, but for what he does for cinema in general. And and that's part of actually what I probably respect most about Martin Scorsese, just his his voice in this international cinema community, uh, what he does for for preservation of film, um, specifically actually preserving a lot of a lot of international releases and and uh, just his voice and, and the weight that he carries in the industry uh, is so incredible. And, and we don't even realize what he means to this community beyond his own films. Uh, and so that's that's actually what I resonate most with Martin Scorsese. But uh, as far as his his filmography in particular, it's been uh, sort of a, a gradual uh, coming with with him and 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 me. And in the sense that, uh, you know, I've never really done like a deep dive where I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to like marathon some Martin Scorsese. Um, but it's been like, a, I'll check out one here, one there. And all of a sudden you start piling up and you realize you you've hit 10 films of his and you're not even <laughs> halfway through his filmography. It's it's something where uh, he he you can just find yourself like discovering new things because he's got so many films and uh all of just uh, i mean there's always just a consistent level of quality with him that is is certainly uh special from him as a filmmaker so i wouldn't say he's like necessarily one of my favorites in particular but i always do enjoy getting to see uh something new from him that i i hadn't before the thing that's wild for me when I'm watching the series and am I coming through clear right now? Am I? Yeah. OK, yeah. I just want to make sure my green light on my microphone just like stopped. And I'm like, uh, I hope that's not an issue. But like the thing that like with Cape Fear specifically with me is just like I'll watch his film and I'll, I'll kind of just give context. I'm recording the Cape Fear and Kundun episode back to back. So I watch them basically both back to back as well. And the thing that was just like so amazing to me while doing it is I'm like, there is such a brevity. I don't even know if brevity is the right word, but there's such a vastness of genre that he's able to hit where it's just like he he makes a movie and then he'll make another movie completely different. And like you actually like look at his filmography because I if you're just kind of casual into Martin Scorsese, which is just like, you kind of think of him as like a crime director primarily, mm -hmm. like that's the genre he'll stick in. And then like you actually look at his, I believe it's 26 features and certainly crime is a big one of a lot of those features. But you also look at it and you're like, the guy kind of does comedy like no other. He does psychological like no other. He also does religious epics literally like nobody else. And just like you go through it and you're just like, oh, there is such a vastness to everything that he does. And there's such a competency Watching Cape Fear, I was just kind of like astonished by the fact that I'm just like, God, he's doing a psychological thriller the same way like David Fincher would soon do it in 1995 with like seven, but he's doing it four years earlier. That's again, not to say that psychological thrillers didn't exist pre 1991, but there is like a style and tone to it that you're just like, oh, God, like this is going to be like what itches a nerve in 1995 with seven and then the game and then fight club and then Fincher's whole filmography like Scorsese's already kind of tapped into that and it's just such a cool thing to experience a director who just kind of has no limits in like just being able to make something where it's just like 
oh yeah i'm gonna tackle a screwball comedy or a dark comedy like oh i'm gonna tackle this and cape fear is kind of the prime example of like this doesn't necessarily have the hallmarks of a martin scorsese movie and yet it certainly feels like a martin scorsese film like it's both that it exists in both paradox to those ideas I, yeah, I think you're right in that it is. We talked a little bit off air. It's it's somewhat in about the middle ish territory of his career, and especially, um, it's a really unique position coming off the heels of Goodfellas, which, of course, we all know is one of the, uh, the, the one of the hallmarks of of yeah. who Martin Scorsese is, and so the quintessential, off, right, like. right, the quintessential Scorsese, and it's like, how do you, as a film director, follow up something like that? It's a really interesting question that we're that I think filmmakers today are, are still always grappling with. When you, know, what do you do to follow up? I, you know, I've, what I've been thinking about right now is this is a weird comparison, but like everything, everywhere, all at once was such a just absolute enigma in the fact that it just blew up for the Daniels right and it's like what do you as the Daniels do next like you have this level of expectation you have this and so I'm just using this as a case study like in the sense of follow-up because this is a really interesting position for this movie to exist post Goodfellas and uh he had a bigger budget with this one I believe um stretching somewhere in the like 35 million dollar territory and so um, there's a there's a lot of really interesting backstory and history with how this uh, movie came to him as the director too, um, that I think we we can dig into as well. But uh, yeah, I I think this is a it's a really interesting position in his the trajectory of his filmography trajectory of his career, and uh, I'm I'm certainly inter- interested to dig into that. You just like presented an idea that I then like I started theorizing on with this idea like because goodfellas is like probably maybe the most notorious movie to not win best picture like of (laughs) all time like it would be this or maybe it's spike lee not even getting nominated for do the right thing like Uh which is kind of crazy that they both happen back to back years but like with it i was thinking about it and it's just like how does scorsese's filmography change if in 1990 he wins best director and best picture for it instead of losing to kevin costner for dances with wolves and my theory on it is like maybe like losing best picture and best director is kind of like the most important and best thing that could have happened to scorsese's career because it kind of just meant like the narrative post goodfellas was like this guy should have an oscar he won it like he unquestionably made the best film of 1990 and there was kind of this reverence that grew from him in the sense of just like now, like not to say casual fans weren't into uh good, uh, weren't into Martin Scorsese. Like he was certainly like making big hits before this, especially in the 1970s with Taxi Driver. But it was yeah, certainly yeah. like Goodfellas was probably the first that really hit the cultural zeitgeist in a way for Scorsese. So then like losing it, it was just kind of like, like, what is this guy going to do next? And he also just in that he kind of had no limits where it was just like, all right, well, we all know now Scorsese is due for an Oscar win, which means like every studio was kind of lining up to work with him. And they're also just like, yeah, do whatever you want. Because if you look at his work post and it kind of starts with Cape Fear, you know, it's Cape Fear in 1991. It's then uh, Age of Innocence and I think 93. Then you have Casino, which if you haven't rewatched Casino recently, like that's a very crazy film. Like that's a very 
director doing whatever the hell he wants on screen. And then he follows up Casino with Kundun and then ends the 90s with bringing out the dead with Nicolas Cage and Paul Schrader writing it. And it's just like, this is such a crazy filmography. And I'm wondering well, if the only, yeah, go for it. Well, it's, I was just going to comment on that because it's it's when you look at it and you you take out because he does some stuff in between. He always you know delves into like some documentary work in between some of his projects and stuff yeah. like that. But if you look at like the feature run he had going back to like if you start with like 1980 to kind of where we are with Cape Fear, you have Raging Bull, King of Comedy, After Hours, Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, and then those movies that uh, you mentioned uh, post Cape Fear. I mean, you talk about a run. Holy shit. What a run of movies that is. Yeah, it's so like wild. Like there is like that's the thing about Scorsese where it's just like you look at it and I think it's what determines a lasting filmmaker is essentially like one, what have you done and what are you doing and what will you do for me in the future? And if you look at Scorsese, he hits every box because he's now been working 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, now in the 2020s. That's seven decades of working in film. Like he has spanned seven decades and every seven within every seven decade he has a movie that's like kind of fundamentally important to understanding filmography like mm-hmm. you have taxi driver in the 70s in the 80s you have raging bull in the 90s you have goodfellas in the 2000s you have the departed 2013 you get the wolf of wall street and we're about to get killers of the flower Moon. like he has like a huge film every decade and then just like and again, I don't know if this theory holds any ground like Goodfellas was lo- losing was the best thing that could have ever happened to him. But it does kind of give him the if he's just kind of the front runner, everyone knows he's going to win it. Like maybe there's like a little less interest, but there's certainly like an outrage that kind of comes out post him losing it, where it's like, how does Martin Scorsese lose best director, best picture to mm-hmm. Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves? Like, how is that even like fundamentally how are they on the same level? And it's just kind of like, gets this excitement and it kind of gets Scorsese in the public conversation, which is also just another crazy talk because we're talking about the Oscars when they're like ratings are like 40 million a year versus now where they're like, you know, 10 million, 15 million. And I think like 40 million is like a low estimate for Goodfellas here. Yeah, it's it's you bring up a really interesting conversation and just the Oscar trajectory of his career, too. And thinking about what pedigree means and and what um the academy is is willing to recognize on the basis of legacy certainly going to be a conversation that's coming into play this year i mean we haven't seen killers of the flower moon yet unless you were at can and uh, lucky enough to to see it but you know with with the the slate this year there's obviously a a fantastic number of films that are going to be in the race but um just be you know if you look at if you look at the field if you assess what we have uh, in contention, you think to yourself, okay, like what's my sort of default? Like this is the number one, just based on pedigree, based on the names involved, based on the quality that I can expect, based on uh, what you know who's involved in it. I mean, Killers of the Flower Moon tops that list, and you know, with with uh, with him coming closer to the end of his career, presumably, uh, I mean, he's going to make movies until he dies. <laughs> yeah. He's made that very clear, but uh, presumably 
there can't be many projects left. And I think you're going to start to get into the conversation with the Academy and, and when we're starting to make predictions and thinking, uh, is there one more win in Martin Scorsese as a, as a legacy? Like this is a final thank you. Like this is what you've given us over all these years. This movie is fantastic on its own, but your legacy is worthy of, of one more recognition. Yeah, and we're starting like not to get too early into Oscar stock because obviously we haven't seen a majority of the movies this year uh, that are in contention. But there is like certainly an element where it's just like the best thing about Scorsese now is you kind of just know the film's going to be competent. Like th- yeah. the oh yeah <laughs> the hit ratio that he has is just kind of like insane. Where you just look at it and you're like, he doesn't usually at least like in my books I'm looking at it. He doesn't really make anything less than a three star movie. Like there's, there's always there's something a basis so of quality, about like a fundamental yeah. level of quality. And I guess that like fundamental like basis of quality, as you say, is kind of like the kind of great segue point into the film Cape Fear, which is a movie that that's kind of the way I would describe it, where I'm just like I'm watching the film and I'll kind of just share my experience watching Cape Fear. I'm watching it and I'm just like this movie, even though I've like seen it even though I've seen this movie parody to death, like there is a fundamental quality of just like, oh, this is a master working with the tools of filmmaking and is able to make something just like on the level of any of the greats who have made crime thrillers or like this type of genre of filmmaking. And I'm like watching it because, you know, I kind of teased this already, Danny, but like I had a weird relationship with this movie pre-watching it before like, this summer, this was the first time I'd watched Cape Fear, but I knew every beat of this movie because I watched The Simpsons. And like maybe the most famous episode of The Simpsons, it's in season five. I believe it's called, oh, I want to say the episode's called Cape Bart. And it's basically Sideshow Bob is tr- trying to kill uh, Bart Simpson and they go through the entire Cape Fear. Like they do the whole thing where Sideshow mm-hmm. Bob is on the uh, under the car where he's stalking him in the house, where he's on the boat at the end, like all this thing. So I knew every beat that was going to happen in this movie, just largely because not every beat, but I mean, like, you know, kind of the big reveal of this movie, which is the third act. Like I knew everything that was about to happen with it because I've seen this episode so much. So then jumping into Cape Fear, I was just like, I had this weird relationship while I'm watching the movie. I'm just like, oh, I know it's about to happen. So there was like a level of dis- uh, suspense that was kind of taken away from me from it. And then I'm also watching the movie and I'm just like, this third act is kind of like a banger amongst all bangers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I I have the pleasure of not having seen The Simpsons beforehand. And so uh, the suspense remained with me. But uh it's that's a, that's a third act that we're going to have to unpack because uh, that packed a punch. Yeah, this is so for those who, again, if you're watching this, why haven't you watched Cape Fear? Because we're going to spoil the crap out of this movie. But Cape Fear, directed by Martin Scorsese, comes out in 1991, stars an ensemble cast that includes Robert De Niro as a convicted violent rapist who basically starts stalking his lawyer uh, and the lawyer's family. Lawyer's family is played by Nick Nolte, Jessica Lang, Juliette Lewis. You also then have other cast members in this 
film, including Gregory Peck, very notably Gregory Peck, who starred in the original 1962 version of this film. And Cape Fear is essentially, like I said, it tells the story of a convicted violent rapist who, by using his newfound knowledge of the law and its numerous loopholes while in uh, serving imprisonment for 14 years, he basically just becomes a legal expert, kind of realizes that his lawyer screwed him over, realized uh, that his lawyer really didn't want to defend him and wanted to keep him in jail. Basically, he goes after his former public defender, uh, whom he blames for his 14 year imprisonment due to purposely faulty defense tactics used during this trial. Uh, it is the seventh collaboration between Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro. Uh, this is one of the last uh, collaborations that we get with Mar uh, Robert De Niro for a second. I mean, sorry, we do get Casino in 95, and then post that they take like a good, I want to say a break until the Irishman. Uh, so this is like, you know, this is Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese reuniting together post the success of Goodfellas in 1990. That's kind of the context of which this film exists. And I think we should just kind of jump into this movie. So, Danny, I'll ask you first time, at least like for me, this was my first time watching this. Was this a movie you had seen before? Was this one you were aware of? This is so this is a movie that I was aware of, but hadn't seen yet and was very, very excited that you had presented the opportunity to do this one in particular because uh, sort of this year, I've been somewhat filtering my way through Scorsese's filmography, trying to um, knock off some of the ones that I, I hadn't seen leading up to Killers of the Flower Moon. I still have some notable omissions that I need to cover before then. But uh, this was one that I, I don't think it's one that necessarily is top of mind when someone says Martin Scorsese, you're not like, oh, the, the Cape Fear director, you know? Um, but like, that's that's what's so wild about him is that he has so many films, as we already, you know, suggested that are so notable that you could you could make that call for for any number of, of movies. But um, this one is one I hadn't seen. Um, I was definitely interested in watching it, uh, checking off another box on the Scorsese fil filmography for me. And um, just, I guess, initial thoughts on this. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, this was um, something that I think is it has trademark Scorsese elements to it, uh, showing the showing of violence. Um, but what I found really compelling about this is that it it actually kind of treads into almost like horror genre territory. Oh, for sure. And I that's something that I wasn't totally expecting from this, but I really, really enjoyed uh, when when it delved into that direction. I'm going to throw out like another like maybe stupid, not erratic non-irrational i don't even know what i'm trying to say i'm going to just throw out a theory that is non-thought out and as you were talking i was kind of just thinking about it and it was just like 1990 also gives us another really important thing goodfellas roberts nero nominated i believe and same year godfather part three comes out al pacino in that film and it's kind of like to some degree the last like semblance of sanity that these actors like these legacy actors have because 1991, Cape Fear, Robert De Niro is insane. Like, this is the wildest performance I think I've ever Wild. seen De Niro give. Like, this is so unhinged. And this is, you know, Scorsese's never been afraid about being a uh, maxillist filmmaker. In here, it's just like De Niro, who is usually kind of like the king of subtlety, especially in his early work of 
uh, Marty, this is like him, like, you know what? Like, I'm going to almost go full clown. Like, I'm going to have a giant cigar. I'm going to wear, I'm going to like wear the most ridiculous bright clothing. I'm going to have tattoos that just looks horribly stupid on me. And I'm going to talk with like the wildest Southern accent from a guy who like clearly can't do a Southern accent. And it's just like, it's so big. It's so brazen. And, you know, Pacino's then does the same thing. Let's send it to the woman where he's just sent of a woman. I should say, uh, he's just like, I'm going to just go full like yelling. And it's just like, it's, it's so interesting because it's almost like De Niro and Pacino kind of realize at the same time, like, let's just kind of go big. Let's go big. We're getting a little older. We're no longer kind of of the capacity where we can do a role like Raging Bull. Like we have to kind of like experiment. And Cape Fear is certainly an experiment for Robert De Niro. Uh, this is an unhinged performance. Unhinged to say the least. Uh, I was progressively, as I was watching this character unravel, just my jaw was like consistently on the floor watching Robert De Niro do what he does in this movie. As you said, there's just so many layers of of unhingedness to what yeah. he's doing. Like it's he didn't pick one feature to go unhinged with. He picked every feature to go unhinged with with this character. And and I I I was very much utterly absorbed into to what he was doing, despite you know the the brashness, the the brazenness, the just outwardly bold nature of of this performance it's it's flashy in in so many different ways uh and i can see i can see if someone's sort of dis you know distanced from it because it's so bold but personally for me i actually saw robert de niro just like i thought he just escaped into this and i was convinced by uh this just like almost like pure evil <laughs> that was that was being exuded uh in in that, that of course the heavy biblical references yeah of course uh, it's it's compelling and i was really really absorbed i think it's a character that you can sort of if you're not if you can't like escape into it you might be like holding at an arm's length if you if you're not really into like how far he goes with this but if you are in that wave and and you can really just get behind uh you know get past the accent get past the tattoos everything i think there's a there's a really elegant suaveness to the evil on display with this character that i was really compelled by yeah there's like this level of it because you know even like when i'm saying like the word on a hinge for like robert de niro and then also thinking in my head i'm like has this guy actually ever given a sane performance in his uh career and that's kind of the amazing thing about this character max uh caddy where it's just like you're watching this film and it's just like this is a guy going even bigger than a guy who's already typically like can go really big like like this is a guy you know like this is travis bickle in taxi driver like this is certainly like mm -hmm. an area that we know robert de niro can hit it's the level of fun in this performance that he's having where like the other ones like it kind of you feel like this soulfulness to these performances like if you see him in like raging bull if you see him in taxi driver if you see him in mean streets if you see him even just in his other works in like the 80s like this is now like a performer who like and maybe this is just like the element of like working with brian de palma in the untouchables where he plays al capone because that's kind of the level that he's playing this entire character of max at he's like i'm gonna just go for this performance i'm gonna go so loud like 
there's so much to it where it's just like that soulfulness that I just talked about. It's like that's completely at the wayside. It's just like everything needs to be bigger. Everything needs to be better in his mind. It's the sense like even in the scene where he's just smoking a giant cigar, like it's so comically big, like it looks like legitimately like a cartoon character from the 1950s where they're just chopping on it. And he's like the best at it. Like he's just sitting there like chewing on the cigar on screen. Like you can literally just like see how moist that cigar is as he's biting on it. What am I like? And this is a, this is a performance that has to kind of like sit with you for a little bit in the sense that like, while watching this film initially first, like 20 minutes, I'm so out on this performance. I'm just like, I don't understand what he's doing. It's just so out of tempo it almost feels like where i'm just like what is he like this isn't even scary it's just kind of dumb and it's one of those things where that's kind of the point of the performance it has to kind of allure you in it has to kind of feel almost like this guy's a little incompetent like this guy's a little stupid to the point that like when you get to the second and third act it's like no this guy's scary as hell I, I agree with you in the sense that you kind of have to get on this film. It takes a little bit of a learning curve to get onto this film's wavelength. Uh, there's even I was a little bit jarred in the beginning because it does this like really quick series of vignettes sort of editing between uh, multiple characters that it's introducing really quickly. Uh, and you're like, oh, my God, like what is what is who are these people? What is happening? And it, it's a it's a little jarring to to get into this movie's wavelength but yeah. you eventually do settle into it and you understand how these characters are interrelated uh how we're going to start to form these conflicts between them and once you once you get into the heart of it once you get into the meat of of what's going on here it's a it's just a thrill ride uh through the ending and i love talking about the dynamics of actors like you talked about wavelength and I'm like one of the most fun things while I'm watching this movie is kind of a wavelength of the sense that like Nick Nolte is kind of aware of the wavelength that Robert De Niro is in in this movie. And it's always that like, I, you know, I always like when watching a film, especially when you have like Robert De Niro in it with other co-stars in it, I always kind of put a competition thing in my head when I'm watching them where I'm just like, oh, Nick Nolte's like, is he cool with being act outacted in this scene? Like there's certain like a competitiveness to this performance. And it's like the challenge of just like one of them's an infinitely better actor than the other one. That's not to necessarily criticize Nick Nolte's like work. He's like provided us a lot of incredible films as well. But it's just like in watching this movie, like I'm just like there is a certain element of this movie. And I'd be so curious to ask. Uh, Scorsese like kind of the question of like when making this movie did you like did you know that like Nick Nolte was going to be like kind of annoyed that Robert De Niro was out acting him in every scene because there are certain scenes where it's just like Nick Nolte tries to go big with Robert De Niro as well and like Robert De Niro literally by design of who Max Caddy is and also who Robert De Niro is as an actor is like kind of like just laughing at him like he's just like he has the biggest smile like laughing at him almost tormenting him. and it's almost seems to like there's this moment like specifically where they have this like scene in a parking lot or actually it's a scene in a parade i believe is where it is mm -hmm. and like they kind of like confront each other and de niro's just laughing at him like it's so like and you actually see 
Nick Nolte as the character Sam just kind of get really frustrated and annoyed. And like there's a certainness of that that is in the uh that is just kind of in baked with who the character of Sam is and the fact of what's going on in his life. There's also a certainness of it. It's just like you're watching him and you're like kind of watching Nick Nolte get flustered a little bit, I feel like as an actor. And that's kind of my favorite dynamic of this movie, which is just like Robert De Niro is having fun with the idea of just like, I'm going to go really, really big. And Nick Nolte, who is also an actor never known for his subtlety, is going to try to go really, really big with me. And in that, I'm going to have so much fun with that dynamic and kind of just play with the fact that Nick Nolte's not on my level. I think you bring up a really excellent point with the dynamics between the actors and characters themselves, because I think one of the strongest qualities of this movie uh, and, and worth noting here is the fact that this was a remake of of a 1960s film. Um, and so he's playing with an existing character base, uh, something that people may be familiar with. And he does make some notable changes to who these characters are. Um, and so what's what's really compelling about this iteration of this story in particular is the fact that they're playing heavily into the idea of control and mm. and who who holds the control in certain situations, whether that's physical control, whether that's mental control, psychological control. And it's really... Uh, a warfare of control between these two characters who uh, ultimately make uh, probably a number of series of bad decisions that <laughs> lose their sense of control over, over the course of the film. But that sense of control is something that I was really uh, compelled by throughout this and the, the sort of back and forth because you, you're introduced, you're, the way you're introduced to the characters is, is one is leaving prison and one is uh what is seemingly a, a pretty well-regarded wealthy uh lawyer who uh has has a family but he also has uh sort of power within his his workplace where he's sort of has this potentially side relationship with someone in in his in his office who who looks up to him and, and reveres his position of of power um and so you you really you you establish a sense of control from the beginning with one is escaping prison um or not escaping prison but uh leaving prison and and sort of on a quest to regain control of their lives ever after being in a 14 year sentence where they had no control and the other seems to be sort of on top of the world with with their sense of control and in that uh, they they have the world at their fingertips. They have power. They have money. And how are we going to begin to deteriorate that and and sort of switch roles between who has control between these two characters? Uh, I think that psychological warfare, that that um, deterioration of who has power in a situation and that back and forth of who has power in a situation is is something central to this that is that is really interesting to watch unfold. You know, there's two points that I thought of when you were uh, talking about that. The first point of this is kind of just a, a memory that I, I'll share with you. Like, so I when I'm watching this film and specifically during the prison sequence where you see Robert uh, De Niro as Max with all the tattoos, he has this giant one mm -hmm. on his back, which is a justice scale uh, 
he has all these like you know writings on him and all so that day when i saw the movie i actually ended up getting a tattoo that morning it was on my right arm and it's a really big one like compared to like i don't have a lot of tattoos i'll try showing it off right now it's this film uh-huh. reel yeah, yeah on there and like i remember getting home and like not necessarily feeling satisfied with it right away where i'm just looking at him like that thing's huge like this is going to be on my body for the rest of my life like is this going to look bad and then like i'm seeing robert de niro in this like giant like back tattoo with all the other ones and i'm like oh my god this is going to age horribly like this idea of getting this big of a tattoo was such a mistake I've now, as time has gone on and it's healed properly, I'm like, oh, no, okay, it looks good. But like, there is like this element of just like the, the, I, I, I don't, I don't want to say that the tattoos are unhinged themselves, but they look so cartoony and they also look very scary. Like, there is this element of where you're looking at them, you're like, that is completely dumb. And also, the guy who would get these tattoos seems completely unstable. Like, there is something literally about the design choice of it where it's just like, oh my God, like he got a justice scale on his back that looks horrible. And now he's well, like, like, that's who he is. I, I think that's a really interesting thing to unpack here because it's it's such a part of his character. The movie does it has multiple scenes where it goes out of its way to uh, make visible these tattoos especially Mm. there's one scene where he's uh, at the police station being strip searched in front of a one-way mirror and uh, they they make a very strong point of inserting shots of each tattoo and revealing that to to uh, Nick Nolte's character and and so I think it's a really interesting part of who he is because obviously there's a lot of biblical uh, references and, and terminology and what he's, he's citing on his body there. And also the design of it, I, I found, uh, I found interesting to, to see because it's very clearly not, you know, not of professional quality. You can, you, you get the sense that, Yes, this was clearly someone with a a stray needle and and ink in uh, in whatever you can find in a prison setting, uh, just making it work on the fly DIY, if you will. It has a DIY feel to it. And that's what was a little bit terrifying to me because you know, I have a, a number of tattoos and I, <laughs> I'd be terrified of of any DIY being associated with what's going on in my body in any sense. And so, yeah, there's, there's this level of instability, this level of of fear that uh, is instantly put into your mind when you see this. And uh, it it's it, the, the also there's one line I want to call out here while we're on the topic of tattoos because I love the way that De Niro's character, uh, I love the way they write his dialogue because he's introduced as this ex-con. He hasn't gotten a chance to speak for himself in any capacity, but he's introduced as an ex-con. He's introduced as illiterate, uh, all of these things that we begin to associate with who this character might be. Then he comes out of prison and he delivers these eloquent and persuasive monologues to characters he's proven he proves throughout the course of the film that he's able to manipulate and persuade in really powerful ways and i find the way that his his dialogue is written is 
extremely engaging. I mean, like I was convinced by some of the things he was saying, which is shocking because we have that 2020 perspective on who this character is and, and ultimately probably where it's going. But one line in particular re in reference to the tattoo is he's like, I'm not going to try to mimic the Southern accent, but uh, he says something along the lines of, well, when, when you're in prison, you don't have time for anything else but to desecrate your flesh. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's it's in a, a really chilling scene, I think, when he is speaking to, uh, I want to say, Nick Nolte's wife character outside of their house. I think he pulls yeah. up in a car uh, and every one of those interactions where he has this he has this feeling of of he it seems like he's in control of the dialogue he's in control yeah. of the direction of the conversation like he has an agenda and he's actively executing that on whoever he is speaking to and it's sort of falling into place the way he wants to because he has this confidence in the way he's speaking uh that's what instituted a lot of fear for me with with these interactions you know it's such a like good point to break bring up because I think what this movie does really well is like specifically like obviously we're talking about this De Niro performance a lot, but like in this performance, like you're right. Like when you see the tattoos, when you kind of get an idea of who you think this guy is, you kind of like associate maybe your own baggage or prejudice against this mm -hmm. type of individual, what he looks like, what we know that he's in there for. And it's kind of the exact opposite where you're right when he starts speaking, where it's just like this guy's uber charismatic. Like there is a charisma to the kind of macho-ness that he's bringing into it, where it's just like he kind of has this like rugged cowboy type feel with him. Like he's a very bad boy, like James Dean, almost like level of rebel without a cause where you're just like, there is something utterly like despicable about you. And yet that's kind of your charm. Like you almost seem self-aware of it where other people aren't. You're so intellectually well-spoken and it's what allows kind of the second act to go as it does, because obviously like a big point of this movie is when we get to the Juliet Lewis character who plays the daughter in this film, like we kind of need to believe that Juliet Lewis would have a conversation with a guy like Max, like basically despite all of her parents' warnings, which in fairness, they don't do great jobs warning her of <laughs> yeah. the danger of it. But like, there is certainly even with this, like this element where you see it and you're just like, yeah, no, I kind of understand like where this charm is, what he is doing so well to just kind of like entrap them. And he does this with all the female characters in this movies. Uh, Lori Davis is one of the other characters in this movie. She's played by Alana Douglas. She's kind of the first victim that we see within this movie. She plays the, if I'm correct, it's kind of implied that Nick Nolte is maybe not having an affair with her at this point, mm -hmm. but like there's a certain flirtatious element that Nick Nolte's character never stops. And it's kind of where we understand who max ends up being like where it's just like oh this how dangerous how scary this guy is because you understand why she would basically go to bed with this guy like there is such a you know a level of scariness obviously associated with max already but there is a level of just charm that he's able to kind of bring on where you're just watching and you're like oh like i get why someone would be attracted to this human being it's kind of the exact opposite issue like to kind of 
point to a movie that does this idea wrong. Like my issue with Joker is the fact that I would never believe that character that Zazay Beats plays in the movie ever would have fallen for Arthur Fleck, uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix in the movie. Like, I'm just like, this has to be some sort of like dream sequence. Like, this is clearly what's not happening in this movie. I'm like, no, I understand why Alana Douglas's character would be attracted to a guy like Max in this movie. Like, there is a fundamental, like, I, there's a charisma and charm that he has where I'm just like, no, I get it. Like, there is a certain, like, you know, just handsomeness to De Niro in a weird <laughs> well, way. If, if anyone is has been able to exploit the the almost like <laughs> insatiable uh, internet thirst of a human being, it is Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro over the course of his career. Nobody knows how to how to make Robert Scorsese or nobody knows how to make uh, Robert De Niro uh, look hotter in the most um, in the most like I shouldn't be thinking this way, but I'm going to. Uh, yeah, nobody <laughs> like Martin Scorsese knows what he's doing with Robert De Niro. And it 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 is really like scary to watch unfold because here's this character, uh, Lori, I think her name is in the movie, who is sort of at a low point. She she's drinking at a bar alone and it's in the aftermath of what she believes uh, Sam's has like uh, has stood her up and. And she's sort of in this moment where she uh, is tied, like emotionally tied to a married man. And she doesn't know <laughs> really where to go from there and walks in Robert De Niro uh, with his with all of his charisma and smooth talking nature. And, hey, uh, you're a smaller person. Maybe I'll chop you into 40 pieces instead. And mm. <laughs> and you get you get this uh, you get that that scene sort of introduces it's the foreshadowing of of him demonstrating his capacity and his uh, literacy in a way uh, to execute his radicalized vision of what he intends to accomplish um, coming out of prison. And it's like, it's also this great psychological moment with it where the character of like Laurie that has this attachment to Nick Nolte's Sam character, like you're in this moment, it's kind of like, you know, it's a it's a very specific choice that I think really pays off for the movie where it's just like Nick Nolte Sam is surrounded by women in this movie like there's there's not there's not a son character like it is specifically daughter wife and you know this character that Max plays is somebody who goes to jail for violently raping a woman like there is a certain like just uneasiness with this all in the in doing what Max does to Lori you do really feel it as a threat. Like, oh, like if this is what I did now, imagine what I'm going to do when I get my hold uh, on your family. And it just adds another of this kind of psychological warfare that Max is playing with Sam. Like there is this just element where Max is just like, I'm kind of like, I'm going to enjoy torturing you. Like this isn't going to be, I'm going to break into your house and I'm going to kill you. Like, I want you to suffer for weeks before I finally kind of like enact my justice. Like it is kind of the idea this biblical idea that Max is kind of believing himself to be where he's like, I am judge, jury, executioner. I am mm -hmm. God. I am all powerful right now. 
and I'm going to strip you of it. And I'm going to kind of make you suffer in a way that like only a God in your life could make you suffer. Like there is certainly this relationship where it is just like Sam kind of becomes at the foot of Max and Max is all powerful and he's all mean. And that's like kind of the dynamic of this movie that I'm obsessed with. And there's also like to talk about the Nick Nolte performance, which I I listen, I'm not like the necessarily the biggest Nick Nolte fan. And I kind of think that works to this movie because and they do this really interesting thing where in the original movie, this is Gregory Peck who plays the character of Sam. Gregory Peck is Atticus Finch. He is like kind of like, you know, the good all-American boy to some sense. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Gregory Peck would kind of be like Costner in the 90s. Like he kind of gives that Kevin Costner all-American charming farm boy. And Nick Nolte does not read that way. Nick Nolte mm-hmm. is never read as all-American charm. Nick Nolte is someone who plays a little crazy, little neurotic, little disgusting certainly like not a family man and that all works to the benefit of this movie where even like the fact of nick nolte going up against a guy like gregory peck like we already talked about how the dynamics of robert de niro and nick nolte like gregory peck is just in this movie for like one scene it's a really crucial scene i believe he plays the lawyer who gets max out again basically and yes and in this movie peck just comes in and he's just like you know He's also then just like kind of taunting the fact that Nolte's not him. Like he's like, yo, you'll never be me. Like there is just so much of these elements where it's like Nick Nolte kind of just losing his mind as other talented actors are in this movie. And like it really works to the benefit of this movie because Sam's not a good guy like in this movie. And I'm not talking about the fact like he kind of does the one thing, the one noble thing, which is like, I'm not letting this guy go free. Like I'm not going to defend him correctly. Like all that, like that's kind of his only one redeeming quality in this movie. Otherwise, he's a really bad husband. It kind of seems like he's not the greatest father, or at least he's a unattentive father. And in doing this, it just kind of allows like the psychological torture of it to kind of continue because again, he is someone who views himself superior to Max. And when Max starts taking it all away, you really get this unwind to Nick Nolte's character where Nick Nolte's like everything about him, like the facade that he is trying to put on. Well, Sam is trying to put on the idea that he is this all American good father type thing. It gets stripped as Max strips it from him. And we get kind of the core of Nick Nolte is, which is this really flawed, this really ugly, this really like at times obtuse character that just, is kind of being tortured for being who he is and can never escape that. I think you introduced what is the key change between this and the original. It is exactly what you pointed out in the original. Sam's character is much more uh, morally. uh, There's a, there's a moral compass with him that, that presents him as uh, much more of a, a stand-up uh, civilian. Mm. And what I think that change does for this movie is it really plays into who Scorsese is as a filmmaker in the sense of there's a clear evil in, in Max Cady, but there's also no hero of this story. Yeah. There, he's Scorsese loves to play with this idea of everyone is actually 
um, at this ethical and moral crossroads. And no character is is left out of that conversation. I mean, every single character has some sort of of uh, moral uh, juggling that they're that they're navigating that um you know doesn't necessarily leave them in the the best ethical footprint here either and it's, mm. it's he's playing with like this idea of the anti-hero and and who are we rooting for and and that kind of thing and and i think that actually adds a, a really strong level of depth to 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 sam's character and and that um dynamic between him and max and important to note here too is <laughs> i was looking into the history of this movie uh, at one point, this was actually intended to be directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, which. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, is is so fascinating to me, because when you think of when you think of of the type of movie that you're going to get between those two directors, obviously two two uh, of the most prominent American filmmakers of of multiple generations. Uh, but what you think of when you immediately think of Scorsese is like crowd pleaser, uh, blockbuster mm. crowd pleaser type of movie. And then you think of Martin Scorsese, you think violence, you think crime, like that's just like the buzzwords that come to mind. Right. And I, I don't think this movie would have worked with Steven Spielberg because there, one, there's no way he would have grappled with the violence and as visible as of a way. Uh, and two, I don't think he would have delved into the evils of what made Sam Bowden who he was and and how that had implications on the way that that Max played the psychological game with him. And that's why that's why I think this really works is because mm -hmm. you have those moral and ethical complications on both sides here. You have anti-heroes on both sides here. And that's what makes that chess match uh, so fascinating to, to see unfold. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, Scorsese was ultimately the one to direct this because it just feels it. This feels right for you. Just look at those two directors profiles. This feels like a better fit for Scorsese. And, and in turn, uh, this actually gave Spielberg the opportunity to do, I think, Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like it worked out for the best. <laughs> there is this element where I do wish we had a Spielberg film like this, where I'm just like, what would one of these types of films of this magnitude like look like what what would an uglier serial killer type movie mm. from steven spielberg look like there is certainly an element of that that interests me the idea that like because i don't know if you know some of the alternate casting for this movie harrison ford was at one time looked as okay for the I mean, character that makes sense sam for this era and, yeah yeah and you're like that kind of feels more like a spielberg type casting for this where it's just like spielberg and ford working together I think Ford probably is reads much closer to a Gregory Peck style than he does a Nick Nolte, though he kind of does stride the middle of it. The other one was Spielberg reportedly wanted Bill Murray to play Max Caddy, which is like, mm. that's an interesting choice. And I also like, I'm like, that also kind of makes sense with that area because like, I think this same year in 91, I want to say Bill Murray teams up with Frank Oz and they do What About Bob? which is the very much comedic version of Max Caddy. Like this would be the nonviolent version of Max Caddy, but there is certainly an element that kind of works. Like there is an element of that that I would be interested in seeing. But what Scorsese, I think, as you kind of alluded to, just are not even alluded to, like just dead, but like what he does so well as a director in this 
is dignity is kind of like the word of like when I'm talking about all these characters, like it is all these characters, like the only character that is ever fully stripped of their dignity is Sam. Everyone else has like kind of a dignity and honor to them. Even this character of Max has this kind of like false sense of dignity where he has such a huge hubris and belief in himself that he carries himself as a way with somebody who walks with some sort of moral righteousness because he does view himself as morally righteous. And, you know, you then talk about the other characters, which we haven't spent much time with her. And I think we should uh, specific, uh, specifically Jessica Lang, who plays Nick Nolte's wife in this movie. Lang is another character who kind of just gets the, there's this feeling that she has as the film goes on. Like these are all the sins of my husband. Like we're all falling prey to this because this is my husband's fault. And that's a dynamic that this movie plays with. I do think the Jessica Lang character is a little underwritten, but it services the fact of that, you know, she is at service to Nick Nolte. And it also just allows Juliette Lewis, who plays the daughter, Danielle, to kind of steal uh, this movie in some way. Like she is the powerhouse actor going up against the Nero in this one. Like there is like uh, just this element like, and we should get into the scene because there's like two fundamental scenes in this movie that we haven't talked about yet. And one of them's in the second act, which is the scene where Max essentially goes to the school. I believe she's in high school uh, during this movie. Like she, ba he basically allures the character of Danielle to like the basement of the school. I think it's actually like the theater room of the school theater. Yeah. And they share a joint. And he, he like briefly sexually simulates her or sexually assaults her uh, since she's underage specifically. And it's the really frightening scene of this movie. Like, you know, uh, Juliette Lewis gets an Oscar nomination for this movie. And it is really this dynamic that she has with De Niro in this movie is kind of the reason it's this in the third act where she just she takes over this movie in a really big way. And I mean, the fact that like she kind of becomes the pivotal focus point of this movie in a big way. And, you know, at such a young age, she's able to kind of step up to the plate and just go toe to toe with De Niro. And it's this extremely long. It's about a 10 minute sequence where they're just talking. And, you know, she doesn't fully know who Max is and what he's capable of. And we as the audience know exactly who Max is and what he's capable of. So there's this tension and there's this direction to this where you really feel Hitchcock's influence on Scorsese. It is an unnerving 10 minutes of film. It's the kind of like the reason you watch this film and you're like, at the same time, you're like impressed by the direction and the writing and the performances. And it's also the one where it's just like, if I never saw this scene again in my life, I could kind of live happily not ever having to see this again. And it's also like the level of just like, yeah, and but it's also like just some of the finest work in this movie. I agree with you in the sense of that's one of the most bone chilling sequences, which is wild because Scorsese is known for and executes in this movie so many like action sequences where there's just like so much violence and and gore and things moving in and out of frame rapid and like all that craziness and chaos 
uh, he's so good at directing. And that certainly happens uh, in specifically the third act. And once we get to the boat, a lot of that uh, is admirable in terms of his direction. But I, I agree with you in the sense that one of the most one of the best directed sequences is that conversation. And that's what makes mm. it even so bone chilling is that it's it's able to subdue uh, the the chaos of this movie. We, we've mentioned multiple times how this movie just goes big in like every way. That's mm. a that's a moment where it, it, it kind of goes small. I mean, oh, it's, it's so minimalist compared to. Yeah, the it's so minimal. And and you're really just uh, shot reverse shot conversation. And yet it's one of the most harrowing moments uh, because what I think is important to note here is that is that with uh, with with this character of Max, he he's clearly, of course, radicalized in his philosophy. uh, But what's what's really important to note is that he's also incredibly smart. Uh, in the way that he's going about this, because throughout the first act into the second act, he's evading capture. He's evading uh, like a critical uh, uh, obstacle to his agenda because he's Mm -hmm. doing things in a smart way. Like he's not fully trespassing. He's not fully physically harming anyone to the point where they have a case to immediately arrest him and imprison him. He's doing it all in a way that's sort of just like toying, with with uh with sam until sam breaks and that's when he's able to to uh you know really um to to really jump on on his plan and so we've established that he has this intelligent credibility to the way that he's approaching this he's he's sort of manipulating them in this this master plan level type of way uh and that that comes to the fore in the way that he approaches Danny in uh, weird to say my own name, (laughs) but the way that he approaches her and the way that he's able to manipulate her into getting her isolated, getting her to a place uh, where he's able to speak to her uh, without, without Sam there, without uh, her mother there. And what, what I, will I, I do. I will pose sort of a a criticism here, in the sense of, I think there there is a sense throughout the movie, especially in the way he interacts with female characters, where you 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 do buy into his charisma, of course, Mm -hmm. as we've said, but there's a lot of red flags that the the female characters are sort of like underwritten in how they react to. Certainly. There and is... and I, I think there's a there's a valuable criticism to to the underwriting sometimes of Scorsese's female characters uh, where they all you even mentioned it at one point they all a lot of what his characters tend to do as female characters are respond to the actions of the male characters um, rather than sometimes exerting their own level of agency. And I thought they, you know, she they, they mentioned that she's 15. They mm. treated her a little bit like she was maybe like 12 or so, you know, like I understand there's a naivete, but like there were some major red flags. That no, was... I, <laughs> I totally agree. I think this is kind of and that's why I was kind of more critical on it with the Jessica Lange performance in this movie mm. where I'm just like, 
she's a grown adult. She kind of understands what should be yeah, going on. Like yeah, there's certain right. like there's certain elements where she's just not taking the character of Max seriously enough. The reason it works for Juliette Lewis and I don't have necessarily those issues is because and I think it's a very deliberate choice is like at no point do either of the parents really say like mm, there is yeah. like a naive naivety that uh, Jesus, I can't believe how, how bad I pronounce that word. But there <laughs> is kind of this naiveness to like this carrier character that Juliette Lewis plays where it's just like they never tell her explicitly almost because like it almost seems like Nick Nolte's character. And again, it's kind of one of the, his sins in this movie. If you kind of want to keep in this biblical theme of it, like one of his sins is he doesn't seem to want to tell his daughter what Max did. But at the same time, like you kind of need, it's not even a kind of like you need to tell your daughter what he did and why he's a dangerous predator and what he's going to do. Because essentially in him not telling her, it's what allows her to go down to that uh, basement with him and stay there. Like it is just solely the idea of like, she is there because her father put her in danger by not telling her anything. And that's why that worked with me again with the Jessica Lang one. I just like my bother of this movie is watching it as I'm just like, she is an intellectually bright character in this movie. She seems to understand the line of work that her husband does they have honest conversations about who this character is in Max, there would be no way that she would fall as easy victim to Max as necessarily the daughter, where it's almost like she is not taking this threat as seriously. Mm -hmm. And that's like the part of this movie that I don't really buy into, where I'm just like, if she knew everything about this and that her husband kind of like threw a case essentially, like there is this level of like this guy has to be so dangerous that my husband would essentially kind of risk his career in a way just to do this. That was kind of my issue with it, which I this kind of now like we should probably start like getting into the third act of this movie, because I do think the scene of Max uh, being a predator towards the daughter on for the rest of the movie is like this is when the movie like just shines and it kind of shifts gears and i'm like this movie like really takes on another level of brilliance is this third act this home invasion scene is deeply disturbing in a lot of ways that the other movie hasn't been in the sense that like there is an actual quite literal sense of horror tension where the other times we have tension this is really like a traditional like Everyone's spread out in a big house. There's traps. You know somebody's in the house and you're kind of just looking out for them. And when the reveal finally happens, this was legitimately a jump scare for me because I did not know this. (laughs) The scene where basically De Niro's character kills the maid and he's now wearing her clothing. Like he just turns around and it's him. And it's a it's both a extremely funny sequence. Like it is legitimately like it is kind of the classic horror of just like that was a lot of fun to get that scare. It's not necessarily a scare of like, oh, that's going to be scaring me for the rest of my life. It's a memorable jump, though. Like it was such a I literally I think when it happened, I'm like, oh, shit, like just like so like discombobulated that that had happened in that moment. You know what I kept thinking about when I when I saw that because I, I certainly kind of jumped back to I kept picturing Heath Ledger as the Joker in the Dark Knight when mm-hmm. he's wearing the nurse's outfit. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was a picture. I 
I almost to the point where I'm I'm thinking if Nolan was like inspired by that in in some capacity. But I, I who yeah. to say on that? But like it, it is it is a jump scare for sure when he turns around. He's in the full like I guess it's a wig and and he's wearing like the pink made uh, outfit. <laughs> yeah, and it certainly like feels like an homage to Psycho. Where like the scene yeah, at the yeah, end of Psycho, yeah, right. where like of you course. know he's in his like mother's clothing, like that's like it certainly is in rhythm with that scene. It it's so like just like it's such a you you know De Niro's in this house, like you know he's somewhere, and just in that moment you just didn't like even think that he might have killed the maid by now. Like it, it just it feels almost... like they're yeah, it's so planned out where it's just like you feel like you know where he kind of is. It was also sort of giving me like screen vibes. Like, yeah, certainly. Like, where, where is Ghostface? You know, the the whole he's there, but do you know where and kind of thing. Yeah, I know. There was when watching this movie, I was like, God, I wish like Scorsese did like a traditional horror. Like a straight film. up horror. Movie. Like a straight yeah. up, like not again. Like I don't necessarily want him directing like Halloween 13 or whatever <laughs> we're at. Like. But there is like an element of like, could, like, I'd love to see you just kind of create your own villain and just do a traditional stalker slasher movie. It would be so good. It yeah. Would I, be so good. Yeah. And then we get to the scene, which is kind of the end of this film, which is kind of where we can wrap up, which maybe we're going a little too fast over this like third act scene. But like, essentially, the third act really takes place on this houseboat where they realize like this guy's never going to stop. We got to kind of got to get out of town. We're going to get on this boat. We're going to kind of flee this way. We're going to get as far away from him. We get the scene where, again, this is a scene straight out of the Simpsons, which is how I knew this scene, like Robert De Niro's hanging on from below their car, like just holding on, which is like probably impractical. I don't think that would actually be able (laughs) to happen. It's gotta be impractical. Like there's no way, but it's like a very scary scene. They get to this houseboat, they're on the Cape Fear River. They're going. Robert De Niro exposes himself, is on the boat, torments the family uh, until eventually he dies. And like this is the third act culmination of this movie. This is kind of Scorsese as a masterful director in so much is going on. Like this is so chaotic of a sequence. And yet it's all completely comprehensible to mm-hmm. the viewer. Where it's just like you have windows crashing, you got the rain, you got the boat swaying back and forth. You got like all of them just drenched in water. You got supplies going everywhere around the boat. Like it's so messy. And yet at the same time, the action is so front and center at the stage and these character dynamics are being completely played with. Uh, this is again, the scene where Juliette Lewis really does get to shine in the sense that she's really the one who outsmarts Max uh, as the same way that like everyone kind of undervalues Max max undervalues her like he's just like this 15 year old daughter's like nothing she's not a real threat and she ends up being kind of his downfall it's his like achilles heel ascent and just what was your reaction watching this sequence because i do think this is kind of the sequence most people probably watch cape fear and then like this is the iconic stuff right i mean i there was this palpable sense when i had gotten to this point of the movie i was quite drawn in yeah i was hook line Mm -hmm. and sinker and then it really took this dark turn i was like i i felt it like in my chest i was like okay here we go here we go like we're getting somewhere now we're we're really going into to new territory and so i like anytime you get a feeling like that while you're watching something that's like really exciting yeah and and I was really excited. The, the only thing I could like 
compare it to mentally of in terms of that feeling was like when you go into like the thrill ride of the third act of get out mm. where it goes like full bonkers uh to the wall and it just that that energy was really exciting to like dive into i'm like okay here we go like we're going into like full horror territory and uh yeah no everything you said is spot on about it's an incredibly messy sequence, but incredibly coherent as well. You, it, I mean, and you undervalue how difficult that is to direct when, when you're dealing with multiple players in a closed space, uh, in, in the sense of closed, uh, setting of, of inside this boat, um, very limited space, uh, uh, multiple players, and you're able to track the action and track all of the, uh, 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 weapons in the mix uh, you're able to to know who has what weapon at what time like that's a, you you really undervalue how difficult that is to achieve to 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 have that level of coherency but um my my feeling just watching this the sequence was uh i was i was really captivated by it uh first of all and um he, he even it, it's at this point where the radicalization uh in terms of the uh, I guess almost like biblical radicalization of yeah. of uh, of of Max is on full display because not only is he like citing the Bible at this point, but he he it, the God complex really comes into full picture, and he even says, "I think I was less than a man, you know, while I was incarcerated, mm -hmm. but now I'm trying to become more than a man." Mm -hmm. uh, so he like kind of outwardly says, you know, what his intentions are of this, this God figure. And uh, when he starts doing things like she throws the boiling water at him and he doesn't even flinch. And then he's got yeah. the flare and it's like, I don't I mean, I've never set off a flare, so I don't know how this actually functions, but he, he sets off like a flare and it starts like oozing what I can only imagine is like some sort of boiling <laughs> liquid yeah, over his hand. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the like clearly scorching his skin and he is not even reacting to it i was like okay we are we are over the top here and i am so on board <laughs> yeah it's so over the top because and this is an element of the movie that we should like kind of like just draw some attention to is the makeup and hairstyling of this movie like so the mm. makeup when he finally gets burned like when the cigar when he gets covered in the lighter fluid lights his cigar like basically explodes into fire and then like the for the rest of that like third act his he's half on fire basically or he's half burned like it's again all just this really unsettling imagery and there's certainly this imagery like he kind of just feels unkillable he kind of again as we've talked about like john carpenter with my michael myers when they certainly burn him and he comes back and we see like the partially burned like parts of his body like there is just like this is a demon that cannot die and like you just really have to kill him even to the point of when he finally drowns you're still like this guy might not even be dead yeah, and they, yeah. like they just do such a great job of just like this guy it does become like in the sense of nonsensical in the sense of just like you're watching and you're like okay i don't actually like this probably all couldn't happen this third act even to the idea of just him holding on to the car for however many miles like this is so now far-fetched and yet that exaggeration of it is kind of what movie making is it is the sense of like yeah but what if like what if we like what if he could do this like how scary would this fucker be and that kind of ends up being like the answer and the answer is robert de niro is fucking terrifying in this third act like this is truly where i'm just like 
if I had any reservations on the performance in the first act and maybe even a little the second, the third act is really where you're just like, this guy is as scary as anyone you'll ever see on film. And it's such a dangerous performance. It feels so almost unethical that he's like playing the character in the sense of like you're watching and like you're like what has this guy done in his life that he could tap into this like right here like and it's such a it's such a brazen performance from Nero it's something that I love that he's willing to do in this is point in his career it's just like I want to be Michael Myers I want to be Freddy Krueger I want to be horror's icon and my name is going to be Max Katie. And it's going to be as scary as Michael Myers. It's going to be as scary as Freddy Krueger. It's going to be Jason. Like, it's all of that. And I love that energy that he brings into it because it is such a fun performance by the third act, especially where it's just like, you can kind of feel it. Like, this is kind of like Martin Scorsese, De Niro. They're like, we've kind of just made prestige our whole career. Like, we've made movies that have bigger meaning. Not to say that Cape Fear doesn't have that, but they're like, we really want to make something full genre here. We want to go full genre horror thriller here and let's just have as much fun as we can in that. And that's what this third act is. This is a movie that has a $35 million budget and like gross is $200 million. Like this was a huge financial hit for them. And kind of like this and Goodfellas back to back just puts Scorsese on a zeitgeist in the popular culture where people now know who Scorsese is as a tentpole filmmaker. And then, you know, he falls out of the casino and then he's like, I'll make Kundin and it kind of all just like slips away from there for a hot second. But it is kind of the power of this movie. It is kind of just like, yeah, this is our best doing a genre that he never tackles and never really tackles again and does it with such exceptionalism. I completely agree on uh, the likening this this third act quality of of De Niro to these horror icons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what? One last comment I'll throw out there that I think I think was pretty clear, uh, just given Scorsese and his his library of references was when this character when this character is is moving down the the river lake or whatever it is, and uh, he's he's uh, handcuffed uh, to his ankle to this structure of the boat uh, and he's really got no escape. Right. He kind of accepts his fate at that point. Um, but he does it in like a he he tries to like frame it as like he's a martyr of, of some greater mm. cause, like what he's saying to himself. And he yeah, sort of he's like singing fades. on Jordan Stormy Banks. I see. Yeah, yeah. That holy shit, too. That gibberish that he was spewing while mm. he was going down was terrifying. Um, but then like as he's going down, he's sort of slowly sinking and it goes to this like close up of his head like just kind of slowly going under the water yeah, and i was like oh that's that's straight apocalypse now right there it like- is. oh <laughs> totally like there is and i think it's the one of the best things of scorsese and i'll kind of use this as my wrapping up point for cape fear like there is this to be on the level of filmmaking that scorsese is and you very much alluded to this earlier with his international work like this is a guy who studies the masters this is like a guy who has a famous quote about the idea of like the way i learned to make film is by i studied the old masters and that is essentially what this guy is willing to do he's willing to watch all types of movies and understand how each director works like this is a guy that like you know this movie comes out in 91 i guess it's about 20 30 30 years later like bong joon ho wins parasite uh, best picture, best director, best writing, like, and like, you know, in his best director speech, like it's probably like one of the most emotional Oscar moments I think that I've ever seen is where like Marty 
gets the standing ovation for best director, even though Bong Joon-ho wins it. Like there is this level of reverence that a guy like Bong Joon-ho, who does make a very social thriller in Parasite, like, but it's also very much in line with Cape Fear. Like there's certain, a lot of sensibilities in it. It's the fact that Scorsese isn't above genre and not being above genre allows you to make movies like this. It allows you to understand the craft fully and it allows him to like, you know, even in like other movies like that you see, like even like a scene like in The Departed with the jump scare at the end of the third act. And it's not necessarily a jump scare, but what happens to the Leonardo DiCaprio character like that is pulling on such classic genre filmmaking. And it is just like this thing where it's just like the reason Scorsese is so good at this is because he's watched a thousand other films like Cape Fear and he's understood what made thriller horror the way it is. And it's 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 his best quality that he's just he's a lover of film and he brings that love of film into a directing. And he just so happens to be an incredible director because of that. all. So that's kind of like my wrap up point on Cape Fear. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we kind of wrap this up? I I think I covered everything. Uh, we we really ran the gambit there on breaking this one down. That was a, that was pretty exciting uh, dialogue yeah. there. Yeah, I really enjoyed this Cape Fear talk. And now we're going to kind of wrap up the show. And I have three questions for all my guests. And I want to make sure we asked you before uh, you headed out. The first two questions are kind of like one in the same, but slightly different. The first question is, who is an actor or actress that you would love to uh, have worked with Scorsese when they were still alive? And who is an actor or actress that is still alive that hopefully they would get the chance to work with Scorsese uh, before he stops making films? So uh, someone that I wish had had the opportunity to work with Scorsese is uh and I haven't seen every Scorsese film so correct me Uh. if I'm wrong and he was in a Scorsese film but uh Philip Seymour Hoffman um is never in one not them yeah never in one he is uh one of my all-time favorite actors and he I feel like can go places uh that would really attune himself well to a to a Scorsese directed mm. film um and then on the other end funny enough uh the, a couple of the names that came up oh oh actually can I throw yeah. a second one in the mix go for it oh okay so uh this this is a name that funny I, I actually a lot of the names I was considering before going on to this conversation came up in the discussion somehow mm. but um another one that I think would just be so good in a Scorsese movie is James Dean uh yeah mm-hmm. the the suaveness of of James Dean a rebel without a cause I think you mentioned at one point that showing up in a Scorsese picture would be would be so so fitting um and then a couple of names that came up uh for people today that i would love to see the first of which we also mentioned was um joaquin phoenix is my favorite Mm -hmm. working actor um i mean can you imagine if joaquin phoenix was was max katie i could see that yeah uh that type of uh, performance from him but then also i want to put into the conversation robert pattinson you know, I just answered Pattinson when I did Last Temptation of Christ because I'm like, Pattinson okay. did yeah. a type role in Last Temptation. But yeah, I know. I love this choice of Pattinson. He's like kind of like my dream guy too for uh, Scorsese. I'm like, this guy could do it so well. Mm-hmm. 
I, you know, I try to answer this for each time too. So I, I'm hoping I'm not repeating names. So I'll go with the one for living actor. And it's also kind of just because I'm like, I wish this actor had more stuff later down his filmography that like, I just kind of wish he had one more performance in him like this. And it's just like, I'm not sure if we'll ever see it from him anymore. I would love Harrison Ford to be in a Scorsese film, like truly get to be a probably at this point supporting character in a Scorsese film. But like, there's this element of just like, you know, and that's not to necessarily degrade the last like 10, 15 years of Harrison Ford's work. Like, I think he's quite good in films like Force Awakens or like Blade Runner 2049 or even like his new return to Indiana Jones. But there is certainly an element of like, I'd love to see this guy play. It's so new like so fresh and kind of do his own thing that he wants to do and like kind of just not be the baggage of Harrison Ford. And I think the only director who like really is alive that could really do that with him is a guy like Scorsese, where it's just like, it becomes a Scorsese Harrison Ford production and less because even like when he reunites, if he reunites with a guy like Spielberg, like there's so much shared baggage between those two with the fact that like Indiana Jones and like, you know, Spielberg's not involved in Star Wars, but certainly a collaborator of Lucas, like Scorsese is one of the ones who like kind of just has like a fresh slate. So I'd love to see those two work together in terms of actor that I would like would have loved to see them work together. I'm always interested in this idea of comedians working with like directors like this. And the one guy that I couldn't get out of my head was where I'm just like, I, I, he's such an intense comedic actor and it's kind of his best quality. And I would have loved to, and maybe it's not even Cape Fear would be the movie he'd be in, but I would have loved to have seen Gene Wilder get a shot with like a Scorsese type. Like there is such a, intensity to his physical presence that you know that allows films like young frankenstein uh that allows films like willy wonka to work as well as they do i like i said that would just be kind of a dream one for me where it's just like gene wilder could kind of like do any type of performance it just seemed like he was kind of like he's always going to be in comedy movies i would have loved to see him have been like in a scorsese role like he just fits that kind of mold to me I think those are excellent choices. I, I would love to see those as well. And now let's kind of do it. Uh, I've, I've been teasing it. I'm not revealing mine until I do the Irishman episode with Keith Phipps. But what is your top five Scorsese? Yeah, so um, definitely noting that I still do have some Scorsese omissions that sure. I, I I need to to cross off before I get to any sort of final list with him. I've seen 10 of his movies now at this point, mm-hmm. which feels like a lot, but also feels like it's still less than half yeah. <laughs> of his filmography. But um, my number five, I'm I've been debating this throughout this conversation. I'm leaning toward putting Cape Fear at number five. OK, I like that. Which I, if I put it there, it will have displaced The Wolf of Wall Street at number okay. five. Tough um, break. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. Fair. I, I think that's partially because I just haven't seen that movie in a number of years at this point. Mm. Uh, it's been quite a while since I I watched it. But um, yeah. at four, I'm going Goodfellas. Yeah. Quintessential. Maybe a little. Some people would say low, but um, going four there. Uh, three, his his award winner, The Departed. Yeah, 
the Departed. What else is there to say about the Departed? <laughs> of course. Um, and then the top two for me are in another echelon. Um, yeah. Personally, I don't think they're. I can. I'm not going to argue if people argue against them being his best films, but mm. they're the ones that I have enjoyed personally the most by far. Oh. And that's uh, number two is After Hours. Yeah, I love After Hours. Love After Hours. I love a good like one day film like takes mm. place over the course of, of one night or whatever. And this one just has so much anxiety embedded into it. Yeah, <laughs> it, like it's it's fantastic. Um, and then you're not going to see this one coming. Uh, this is this is my hot take uh, because it's just so pers- I'm so personally connected to it that it will forever and always be my number one. Yeah, I, maybe I shouldn't say that before Killer the Flower Moon, but like it, it has such an intense like personal connection to me. It's a sure. movie that I originally saw with my mom when it came out in theater. Um, I read the source material growing up and was a huge fan of the book. Uh, Hugo is is my number one Scorsese. OK, OK, that's I really like that pick. You know, this is uh Hugo is like kind of the underrated one in his filmography in the sense that it's just like it kind of comes out between so much, but Hugo's and yeah, no, I really like that pick. So what is that? So it's Hugo number one, after hours number two, number three was uh Departed. Did you say The Departed, Goodfellas, and then Cape Fear. Yep. That's what I'm Perfect. going for now. Yep. Perfect. Uh Danny, before you leave, I just wanted to give you a second to plug yourself, tell you uh tell the people where they can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can find me personally at DTJ Cinema on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. You can also find my own show uh, that I host on a weekly basis uh, at The Rolling Tape. Uh, We are on all podcasting platforms. You can also find us at www.therollingtape.com where we um, host our podcasts as well as our written publications and uh, we have tons of content coming uh, this upcoming, the rest of the year. So a lot of exciting things there. Uh, so check us out. Danny, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Cape Fear. We will be back uh, with the next movie in his filmography is The Age of Innocence. And booked for that episode is no one at this moment. So I'll have to f- still, I'm still searching for a few more guests. Age of Innocence is one of them. We'll be back soon. With the Age of Innocent, Danny, thank you for joining me so much. And thank you all for listening to this show. I'm Ben Friedman here from the Beniverse Movie Channel talking Scorsese at this moment. Thank you all so much for watching. Take care and bye bye.